Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast, where we discuss the books and ideas which have influenced Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. Chris Swanson is back with me today to talk about the work of Thomas Reed. Welcome, Chris. Well, thank you. So we have been this season, since the school year has started, talking about the beginning of the Enlightenment project. We've talked about... Bacon, and we talked about Descartes, we've talked about Hume, Barclay, and Locke, and now we're getting to a figure that we hold in very high regard here at Gutenberg College, and that's Thomas Reed. Chris, tell us a little bit about Thomas Reed's life and times, what's his context, and what's his bio before we get into his philosophy? Uh, Thomas Reed was Scottish, so he lived up in Scotland. He was an academic. He was alive primarily during the bulk of the 18th century, from seven, early 1700s to the very end of the 1700s. He was very well-educated and went to school. He took various positions in universities. Eventually, he ascended to the chair that Adam Smith held in philosophy, moral philosophy, at the University of Glasgow. He's not as well known as many philosophers. He's usually not included in most university philosophy curriculums. He's a little bit obscure in terms of philosophers. But at the time that he wrote, and for another century after, he was one of the more influential philosophers in the world, very influential in England, France to some extent, and very influential in the United States. In fact, all the way up to almost 1900, most universities in the United States would teach Thomas Reed's common sense philosophy. So he wrote a few books. He didn't write a lot of books, but the, his books were fairly significant. He was a little bit older when he wrote them. He wrote one book called Inquiry into the Human Mind on the Principles of Common Sense. Common Sense is a phrase that gets associated with Thomas Reed. The other two books were essays on the intellectual powers of man and essays on the active powers of man. The first one having to do with knowledge and knowing and epistemology, and the second one more to do with ethics and behavior and things of that sort. So yeah, that's Thomas Reed in a nutshell. Yeah. So just to give some examples of how we know that Thomas Reed was extremely famous, Adams and Jefferson, the presidents of the United States, had lively correspondence with each other throughout their lives. And they would often refer to Dr. Reed without ever commenting or explaining who he was. So he was a well enough known figure that they could just reference him and talk about ideas that he was having. There's a famous early Supreme Court decision, Chisholm v. Georgia, the details of which are rather involved. But one of the justices essentially says, in order to be able to pronounce good laws, we have to have correct judgment. And as far as I'm concerned, no one's articulated what judgment is better than Dr. Reed. Right. right so right. there's this consensus idea among many of the founding fathers, that Dr. Reed is a very significant figure. Part of the reason why he goes out of favor is there's one way of thinking about common sense philosophy, and I guess this will bring us into talking about what Reed means by common sense, but let me start by explaining what he doesn't mean by common sense because it was adopted as what common sense philosophy meant and it had 
terrible consequences during the lead up to the American Civil War. There was a lot of discussion about what the Bible had to say in terms of slavery and and what does it say? What is the Bible teaching us about slavery? And it was very common to say, well, any man of common sense knows that this means, you know, if you were a a Southerner who upheld slaveholding as a moral good, you would say, obviously the text says that slavery is fine because it's talking about how you should treat your slaves, et cetera, et cetera. And then the others would respond, well, any man of common sense knows that this other thing that Jesus said about loving your neighbor means whatever they would have it mean. And so common sense came to mean this intuition I have about what the correct thing is. And that's not really what Reed had in mind in terms of what he meant when he was talking about common sense. So Chris, lay out for us what was it that Reed meant when he was talking about this idea of common sense. So probably the best way to answer that question is by providing a little bit of philosophical background. For those of you who have listened to our previous podcasts, just a brief reminder of those sorts of things. And it's the contrast with them that I think really clarifies Reed's position with regard to common sense. Of the philosophers who come before Reed are people like you mentioned earlier that we've talked about, Descartes, Locke, Berkeley, Hume. In fact, Reed was a contemporary of Hume, maybe a little bit later, but not much later and thought highly of Hume. But those philosophers had followed down a particular path of philosophy that is often referred to as the ideal philosophy, and it's ideal because it's related to ideas. And for them, in different ways, but for most of them, the thing that was most important, the thing that is most trustworthy, the thing that is most knowable, are the ideas inside our heads. And so, for instance, mathematics are ideas inside our heads. One plus one is two. These are not things that need empirical verification. These are things which seem to be true, that a something and its opposite cannot both be true at the same time, these kind of logical principles, that sort of thing. And they said, that's really all you have. And when it got to Hume, it eventually became so much internalized. It was so much inside the ideas that, that the experience of the external world was doubted because all we can really say is the ideas or the experiences inside our heads that we have of the external world, but we cannot then claim that the rest of the things outside of the external world are in fact true because all we have is the ideas in our head. And this is what Reed is really opposing. This is the main thrust of all of his philosophy. And he says, essentially, he says, but every other man in the world or woman, everybody else who lives and acts and breathes and behaves, all think that the material world is out there and that they are interacting with the material world. He calls them the vulgar, okay? And that's taking from a previous author. But the vulgar is uh, the common people. And he says that they have the common sense to know that the world out there exists, that it is something that they can't help in some sense in believing. They can't operate or function in any way without 
these fundamental, what he refers to as common sense beliefs that people exist, other people exist, these sorts of things. I'll get into a list here in a little bit, but that's the broad picture yeah. there. Yeah. It's a basic, it's very common to talk about human beings as software, hardware, to compare them to computers nowadays, but it's the basic hardware of human beings, right? Is that there are certain things that are just, as opposed to Locke, who thinks that human beings start as a blank slate, Reed doesn't think we start as blank slates. We come with factory settings, as it were, and then that's how we learn everything else that we learn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. There are certain things, if he doesn't go into detail about strictly the development or how exactly these ideas manifest ourselves in our adult age, but clearly all adults believe that they exist. All adults think that they think. All adults interact with other people as if they were real people and existed and so on and so forth. Well, an example of common sense that isn't propositional in that way, having to do with ideas and so forth, is like imagination, mm -hmm. you know. Now, there's some people with aphasia who can't make mental pictures, but most people make mental pictures and people who have made mental pictures their whole life, no one had to sit them down and be like, okay, calm down. <laughs> You're going to have mental pictures. It's going to be okay. This is normal, right? <laughs> right. I remember reading an article about somebody who had aphasia, who there are certain things that if you don't have... Reed calls them faculties, right? If you don't have that faculty, like you can compensate in a right. lot of ways. So actually one of Reed's heroes was a, a blind geometrician, right? So named Dr. Saunderson and Dr. Saunderson was blind. And so he never had the benefit of understanding what color was, or he didn't have any experience of how your eye perceives things like distance and stuff like that. But he was a leading expert on the geometry of vision. And he just had to work out in his own way, how does the mathematics of what's going on mean certain things for how people would perceive stuff? Yeah. And I remember reading this article about somebody with aphasia and they read an article about a man who had been in some kind of terrible accident where he had received this just horrendous head injury. I think there was there was some kind of steel bar involved or something like that. And they had successfully operated on the man so that he survived. But the, unfortunately in the article, it talked about how he could no longer make mental pictures that he was aphasic after undergoing the surgery. And this kid who was aphasic was like, well, shouldn't we all be amazed that he could do this to begin with? And so he started walking around to all his friends talking about this and they were like, no, dude, that's pretty normal, actually. <laughs> and, he's, and he realized that he had aphasia because of this. And so there are just certain things that are true about how human beings operate as thinking, perceiving, imagining, remembering beings that nobody ever had to teach you how to do that. And probably there was some amount of learning that you did in, in very early childhood. It's so fundamental to how human beings interact with the world that you can't get away from those things. Right, right. 
That's exactly right. And so actually Reed was was a fan of the early ideal philosophy. And he, in his youth, was convinced that it must be true. And then he started looking at it more and he realized the consequences of it. And he said, well, wait a minute. This philosophy leads us to a position that he's going to call skepticism. And basically it says that we don't really have the ability to know what most everybody thinks that they know. We can't know that an effect is the result of a cause or that this particular cause is associated with this effect. We can't know all sorts of things because all we really have is the stuff inside our heads. And so Reed says to himself, what's going on here? Because it seemed like the argumentation that they gave us was excellent. And in some sense it is. But what Reed realized was the place where he found a criticism or a critique was their very starting points, their very fundamental assumptions, because what do they assume? They assume things like the stuff inside their head, their internal experience, their inner thinking, all that kind of stuff is trustworthy, and that, they, that, is, that we can say that whatever we have inside our heads is real and true or so on and so forth, but everything outside is not trustworthy. And Reed's, well, why? Why did you make that decision? And Reed Reed is is specifying that is a decision that somebody made. It's not something that is immediately obvious. And he takes him to task and he says, well, since you have to prove everything, why don't you prove your assumptions? On what basis are you going to claim these ideas are really real? Another assumption that, say, for instance, Hume makes is that we have these impressions on our mind and they are not actually caused by anything, but we have these impressions. So I might have an impression of a light bulb or a tree or something like that. And a passive mind receives this impression. And Reed's like, well, that's not really how it works either. That on what basis are you going to claim that we actually have these impressions? Hume just states it at the beginning of his thing. It's an assumption that he starts with, and Reed takes issue with the assumptions that they have. And that's where he gets his common sense philosophy. Well, one of the things that I think is key to the ideal philosophy is this idea of resemblance. Mm -hmm. Right now we did an episode with Naomi and her take on Hume is a little more moderate than the position that Hume is totally skeptical. Mm -hmm. However, we talked about the billiard balls running into each other. And if you have the more absolute reading of Hume where you're saying, well, there is no impression of cause and effect. So what is that? What is that even? There's nothing in our experience that resembles cause and effect, right? Right. This is a very common sort of move that the ideal philosophers make is they say there's nothing in our experience that resembles a certain idea to step away from the precise meaning that they mean, (laughs) right? We have a notion of cause and effect, but there's nothing in reality that resembles cause and effect So we're not really justified in having that notion of cause and effect. And Reed is going to say, well, why is it necessary for us to agree with cause and effect that we have to have 
an impression that resembles cause and effect right. in order right. for us to say that it's legitimate. Correct. On what basis Correct. are we going to claim that? There's really no... It's just a bald statement that Hume yeah. is making. He's just yeah. claiming that this must be the case, that you have to have an impression of it in order to call it real. There, There is a sort of naive... Not naive. At first blush, this makes some kind of sense, right? Because... You mean the Humean resemblance well, the idea, theory? Because this idea of an impression, right? Hume's contention that my impression is... I have a sense experience, right? I'm looking at the table right now. Classic sort of philosophical thing is I look at the table. I guess philosophers are always around tables, right? I guess. But I look at the table right now, and if I turn my head away, I can picture what the table looks like in my mind. But when I'm picturing it in my mind, it's not as vivid as when I'm perceiving it. And so there's this sort of initial credibility to the idea that a thing has to resemble my impression of it. Right. And one of the things that Reed points out that's somewhat counterintuitive is, well, actually, none of your perceptions resemble reality. Right. And which is which I I tried to work through Reed with some seniors at a high school that I worked at. And when they understood that's what he was saying, they were like, well, we can't believe anything. <laughs> I said, no, that's wrong. That's exactly what Reed's saying is, no, if stuff doesn't resemble things, that doesn't end the conversation. But that idea is so, that enlightenment idea, that ideal philosophical idea is so obvious to a lot of folks, either because our history of receiving the ideal tradition or I don't know confirmation bias or something like that that when you pitch the that observation to people they go oh no like then we can't know anything then they become very skeptical and Reed points out whatever stuff is floating around in the air that causes us to smell a rose isn't my experience of smelling a rose is and the same thing is true of it, it becomes harder to believe when you start talking about sight because the things that we picture are memories of things that we saw. But when we're looking at something, we are trying to understand the object without really necessarily paying attention to what it is that we're perceiving. I might use a different color swatched to draw, again, the table (laughs) if it's bright sunlight than if it's lit by the lamp that's in this room instead of by the sunlight. But I'm still going to tell you that the table is brown, even though technically what I'm perceiving is a different color. I don't care about what I'm actually perceiving per se. I'm just trying to get at what color is the table or whatever you want to know about the table. I can get that information for you, but I don't pay careful attention to my perception in the way that the ideal system folks want to pretend like we do. Right, right. Reed has some really useful language in talking about this whole business with regard to sensation and perception. He talks about 
a sign and the thing signified. So the sign is what he's going to refer to as a sensation. And the thing signified is he's going to refer to as a perception. So an example of this would be the smell of the rose that you talked about earlier. There is a sign that we receive. There is a sensation that we receive. We smell the rose, right? But that signifies something to us, namely that there's a rose there, right? right? And the same thing goes with visual perception. You have a sign, which is your sensation, but you immediately you immediately go from that sensation to belief that there is a thing which is which the sign is telling you exists right so it's not something that we have to think about it's an immediate kind of response to the sign that we receive namely that we perceive an existing object out there when we receive the sign, which is this sensation. So if you're holding a baseball in your hand with your eyes closed, okay, you believe in the existence of the ball, right? It would be almost impossible not to believe in the existence of the ball because you have these signs, this feeling in your fingers that tells you that there's a ball. It's hard. It has a certain shape and size. We have all these attributes that we can give to the ball even without looking at it and know that there's something in our hand, that kind of a thing. Yeah, even a word can be a sign. He, he goes on to talk about the way that words do the same sort of thing. A word is a sign which signifies it. The word tree, that's just, it's a particular sound, right? Does that sound resemble a tree? It doesn't resemble a tree at all. It sounds like tree. Right. <laughs> Which, yeah, if you think about it, doesn't have anything to do at all with yeah. a tree, right? Well, the obvious example in language is how I could use the word arbol, which is the Spanish word for tree, right, to talk about the same thing. Exactly. And so there's nothing inherent in the word tree right. that means this object that we're talking about because I could speak Spanish my whole life and never... I can never right. encounter the English word, and I'd still talk about the same thing just fine. Yeah, he calls those artificial signs. Right. An artificial sign is a sign which has been created or organized or come up with by human beings. And these are signs which we have to learn, which we are not familiar with innately or as children or as babies or whatever. And we have to learn those signs. We have to learn the words this word, this sound tree corresponds to an actual physical tree. Or if you're learning Spanish, it would be the other sound that would be related to. But there are other also signs that are not artificial. So he would say, for instance, a smile. A smile is not an artificial sign. It's not something that we had to learn about, that we had to teach. We all automatically, naturally recognize what a smile is, it is communicative to us of a particular response on the person who's doing the smiling. So there is a communication that's going on there or a laugh that would be a sound, but we don't have to interpret that sound. We don't have to learn that sound. That's something that's automatic in the way that we, as human beings, those are natural signs instead of artificial ones. And Reed actually makes the case that we had to have 
natural language to come up with an artificial language because how else would you attach meaning to these random sounds that don't have any inherent meaning if we didn't have other things that did have inherent meaning that could make those things take on greater meaning. Sure, sure. No, that's um, true. That's true. He talks about things like tone of voice, right? Mm-hmm. I think about how I interact with dogs that I've owned. Mm-hmm. I, you can say anything to a dog and it'll wag its tail if you say it in the right tone. Yeah, exactly. And so those sorts of things are a natural language for Reed. And in the same way, nature has a language that it's communicating to us with, mm-hmm. right? That, mm-hmm. And you can get very granular in terms of scientific explanations about how photons are interacting with the chemistry of the table so that only the brown light rays are bouncing off the table and that's what hits my eye and that's why I perceive the thing is brown. And Reed is trying to come up with an explanation that's not not necessarily interested in what is the science behind that, but just noting, but we know it's brown. <laughs> right. And there's a, there is, I feel to take this back to his sort of goal here, which is to refute the ideal philosophy. He believes that there's a very active process in our minds in this process of perception. Perception is to identify the thing which is signified by the sign. It is not the case that somehow the color or shape of the table is creating an impression on us and that we don't have anything to do with it. No, instead, we are seeing very subtle signs and our mind is incredibly rapidly, without our even realizing it, recognizing the signs to immediately jump to the thing signified. It doesn't take a lot of effort to go from a sign to a thing signified. You can take any object, a small object, and you look at it from different angles and different lights and all that kind of stuff. All of those are really different signs. But it, it is instantaneous and effortless to immediately jump from all of those different signs, which are totally different, and get the same thing which is signified. And so there, there must be something inside of our minds that is very active in the process of perception. And whereas the ideal philosophers very much were, we have our internal brains, we have our internal minds, we have these impressions which are happening to us, which we are not causing in any way, and then we're organizing and and imagining and remembering and all this other kind of stuff like that inside. But the whole idea of perception is a very passive process for the ideal philosophers, and reads this, that's just not the way it works. And it means that philosophy gets stuck in this place where you're back to arguing in a different vein, but you're doing that arguing about how many angels fit on the head of a pin, right? Because if you're limited to, well, what impression did I get this idea from? Right. It's okay. Well, if you don't, if that's not the way that you process the world, actually, Mm -hmm. why are we talking about this? Right. Right. And so, It seems that Reed's chief concern, or one of his chief concerns, is the state of philosophy. It just gets really weird because we're not actually talking about how human beings actually talk about stuff. One of the things that he observes about Hume, well, actually all of the different philosophers, is they can't believe 
their own philosophy for right. very long. Right. You right. Know, one of the things he points out about Descartes, I think therefore I am is uh, in Reed's words, he says he was never diffident of his own existence. Right. Right. He never actually believed that he didn't exist. He was just playing a game. Exactly. So let's, and if he didn't believe in his, ex- in his existence, he would be a madman. Right. Right. He, we would institutionalize. <laughs> he has this line that I think is, that I think is wonderful. And he says, if you had a friend who believed he was made out of glass, which I think is, it's, look at the table. It's this classic, uh, here's a crazy person, is they think they're made out of glass. He goes, if you had a friend who believed you were made out of glass, would you treat him with logic and metaphysic or with physic and regiment, <laughs> right? Would you treat him with logic and arguments or would you try to diet and exercise him so that he got over whatever yeah, his mental condition right right and so there's just basic i don't know reed's main argument seems to be a moral one right like you're playing around you're playing this game that like yes like we'll get you into the fun french parties or whatever but you're not really interested in understanding how human beings actually are relating to the world. No, that's exactly right. As I was reading and discussing this with students this fall, one of the things really struck me, I've thought about this distinction before, but it is an interesting distinction that there's kind of two sorts of philosophy, okay? And the distinction that I like to make between the two is, I'm going to use words, but I'll explain them. One is systematic philosophy and the other is common philosophy. Now, maybe those are not the best words, but the idea of the systematic philosophy is that you are building some sort of philosophical system. Somehow you are explaining in some deep matter. You are finding some very basic principles. And from these very basic principles, you are creating and building this gigantic system which explains all of human nature and the world and our experience and... God and angels and everything else, right? And so it's you're creating some sort of superstructure to explain everything from very basic principles. And when you start doing that, when you start creating these kinds of systems, the system somehow takes precedence. It's like this somehow has this, it, it uncovers the mystery of the world that normal people cannot possibly understand. And it's like the hidden mysteries of our minds or something else. Plato is, in his theory of forms, is systematic in that way. And a later philosophy like somebody like Hegel, who has this big system for the development of humanity and the world and all this kind of stuff, this grand system is very systematic. The other kind of is more common philosophy. And in that, the goal is altogether different. The goal is to how can we make sense of our life experience? How can we make sense of what a common person experiences, how they function, how they act, how they believe? So the ethical side would be how do they act and understand? And the epistemological side would be how do they know and how do they think? those sorts of things. And it's really an exploration of humanity from the basis of experience rather than a very technical building of a gigantic system of some sort. 
And I really do feel like philosophy gets a bad name because most of the time when people are thinking about philosophy, they're thinking about those huge systems that somebody has created. And we look at that and we go, that's just crazy. And because it is. And I really appreciate Reed because Reed, his whole approach to things is, well, what do people do? What do people say? How do they act? How do they think? How does their minds work? It's a reflection upon the inner workings of my mind, not an attempt to create some amazing system. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's a really good distinction, I think, in philosophy. I think there's, I think we have talked at various points about when we started this school year, we started with Charlie's discussion of science. And one of the things we were talking about, and maybe we talked a little bit about this in the Descartes episode, he's, I'm going to solve all the problems. Right. And we were talking about, well, there's nothing at stake there. It sounds like there's a lot at stake because you've made it this grand whatever, but like at the end of the day, you're still a noble, like in your Alps cabin, entertaining yourself with this thought experiment. And then you go off and ski or whatever he was doing. And so there aren't any consequences for you getting it wrong. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about how stakes make philosophical questions suddenly all that more important. Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of thing that Reed is interested in is we're not like when we do philosophy, we're not playing games, right? There's real stuff that's really troublesome and problematic and the things that people really need to sort out. And you give them the ideal philosophy, like what's it going to do for them? Right. Now you've, now you've created this like very confusing system when they're actually trying to sort through, I don't know, even the anxiety of the Copernican revolution, right? That's part of what all of these people is, are trying to process as well. How could we be so wrong? Right. And what he's trying to, we can, we need to get our head on straight about how we confront uncertainty and those sorts of things. Yeah, exactly. Well, I feel like Reed, in his early days when he was interested in the philosophy of Berkeley and Hume and Descartes and Locke, and I think the thing that turned him was recognizing, oh, there are some consequences to these philosophical positions, these skeptical positions. There are some, and, and the consequences usually don't appear as clearly until you get to the ethical side of things. Right. Descartes, he got past some of that because he proved the existence of God or something like that, and then he was able then to adopt more or less a Christian ethical system of sorts. Yeah. But when you get to Hume, by the time you get to Hume, you go all the way and you start looking at Hume's ethical system and the basis of morality becomes feelings. And I think Reed said, okay, there's a problem here that somehow we went wrong somewhere. We need to go and figure out where we went wrong there. And so, yes, I think the consequences are a big deal to read. And that's why moral philosophy is what he's mostly known for, even though we're talking about the knowledge side of things. It's his moral philosophy that's really was really significant, um, that because of the way that we know, it leads to conclusions with regard to morality that we can't escape, whereas in Hume's philosophy, you get to escape a lot of the moral 
requirements that might be placed upon you. Well, and I think it's such a constant human temptation to pretend that things are different than they are. Right. And the stakes for that might be relatively low, but the attitude of, I don't have to relate to the world as it actually is dangerous and insidious wherever it is, regardless of what topic it's related to. In the inquiry, one of the implications of this difference that he has between natural language and artificial language is that these philosophers want to get rid of sensation or Descartes at least, right? Wants to get rid of sensation as a trustworthy means to access reality. But for Reed, sensation is, that's how, that's you understanding the language that nature's supplying you with. Right. And his point is, and one of the implications of what he's saying is like, People have deliberately lied to you in English or Spanish or Latin or whatever language you're speaking, and yet you don't think that's a invalid way to interact with other people who speak that language. But you got confused a little bit about how to interpret the sensory data of the sun, and now you're like, we need to throw out our senses. That's crazy. Right. No, I think that's really significant. I think the whole business, the whole ideal philosophy, and I think to some extent, one of the driving forces behind a lot of philosophy is the fear of making mistakes. So somebody like Descartes is, we have made mistakes with regard to the motion of the, the sun and the earth. They believed that we had made some mistakes with regard to how to read the Bible because we had different people reading the Bible saying different things and then going to war about it. And so if our observations, which gave us the earth being the center of the solar system, is not trustworthy, and if the Bible which leads to wars between Catholics and various Protestant divisions is not trustworthy. What are we left with? We have to figure out something where we're not going to be making these mistakes. And I appreciate in some sense the desire to do that. It's just that the hubris to think that we can come up with a system which is going to prevent us from making mistakes it seems like it's a problem. I think another important distinction here to be made in philosophy with regard to doubt and mistakes and that sort of thing is a distinction between justification and discovery. So what do I mean by that? The focus on justification is I need a system, a method, a means, a philosophy that allows me to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that something is true, that we can justify, that I can say, yes, this is true, and there is no way that you can criticize or show that I am wrong. The other approach is more of focusing on the discovery, which is how do I actually know things? How do I discover things? How is it that, what is the process by which I learn and know, which is more of an exploration of humans human behavior, human minds, human function, all that sort of things like that, 
with an implicit recognition that the human person is fallible. It is limited. It is capable of making mistakes. It is capable of making mistakes in reason. It is capable of making mistakes in sensation. It is capable of making all sorts of different mistakes. And because of the limited nature and the behavior and the way our minds work and everything else, we're never going to get that system, that justification system that is going to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that such and such is true. And we need to be okay with that, right? And I feel like one of the mistakes that philosophy has made is this search for this absolute undoubtable certainty by creating some sort of system. And it shows up in a lot of different ways. And there's a kind of desperation, but there's a hubris there as well. Yeah, that it seems almost biblical, right? You have this impulse to not be shown up. Right. That leads to people pretending like everything is good. That's very in line with Cain thinking, right? Avers Abel and Cain sort of like, how dare you? <laughs> yeah, I think like, that's a great story. In fact, right. later, the later part of Cain is particularly interesting because God says to Cain, he says, I'm going to put a mark on you so that people don't kill you. And Cain's not sure that I trust that. Right. I think I'm going to go build a city so that I can protect myself so I don't have to trust God, that kind of a thing. Right. And Jesus condemns the Pharisees, who he talks about as being actors, right? Right. I, if I come out and I make a big show of being generous to the poor or of praying publicly or whatever... I can prove to you and probably more importantly to myself that I'm a good person. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about how the people who are blessed are the people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? which means that they're not receiving righteousness. Right. right? And there's a lot of lip service paid to the idea of being open to new ideas of having intellectual honesty or intellectual humility. But it's one thing to pay lip service to that, and it's a different thing to actually do it. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons why Reed has such enduring appeal for us is because at the core of Reed's argument is basically actually do this thing. <laughs> Don't pretend like you're doing the thing. Actually do it. And he, I want to talk about in just a second, if you have any sort of critiques about Reed and Reed sort of Reed's thinking and things like that, but whatever critiques you might be able to level at Reed in the particulars of his arguments or ideas or whatever, the fact that he is so adamant that it matters how things actually are, right? That when we're talking about the mind, we need to actually go discover what that is. That just, it continues to have a kind of relevance that the very specific prescriptions of a Descartes, like Descartes remains relevant because he's so influential, but he's not necessarily speaking to us live right. in, a, in the kind of way that Reed still no, I agree I agree <clears throat> I agree so after we have 
so vociferously praised Reed. Mm -hmm. Are there any issues that you, Chris Swanson, have with Reed as you think about the details of his philosophy? Are there things that he stands by that end up, you think, being maybe very subtle, but he maybe didn't quite get it? Sure. Well, perhaps we can get into it by... I'm talking a little bit about another contemporary of Reed who was far more influential and far more popular, Immanuel Kant. And Kant had very little to say about or to Reed, but the one comment that he did have was that Reed assumes everything that is to be proved, right? So he's assuming all these principles of common sense and the trustworthiness of our senses and so on and so forth. And as far as Kant was concerned, now that... We need to prove all that stuff. We need to start with pure reason and prove from there and that kind of a thing like that. So that's not exactly my critique of Reed, but there is potentially some critique, I would say, or at least a question that can be raised with regard to some of Reed's foundational principles of common sense, because he lists a, a variety of things that he takes for granted. He takes for granted the material world. He takes for granted that I have a will that I can exercise and that there are other humans who have life and intelligence. And when you ask, when you query him, and he will quickly say that he has no idea why he believes these things, and he takes it for granted, and it must be an innate, an innate belief or aspect of human nature that we believe these sorts of things. And I sometimes wonder whether or not some of the things that he claims are innate that we, what we have to take for granted are actually the result of other more fundamental, more basic capacities that we as human beings have, and that those capacities are working with that we are working with as infants and as we grow into childhood and adolescence and adulthood, that our slow but sure development, our mental development, the way that our minds work and so on and so forth, that every human being, because we all develop our minds similarly, because we all have the same DNA in some sense, that the capacity of learning leads to the kinds of conclusions that he makes, but those conclusions are based on a capacity of learning and a a common experience that all human beings have rather than being the most fundamental thing. So I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, to go back to our comparing human beings to computers. Right. He would contend that certain things are hardware that you think are software. Could be, yeah. Something could be that that, that we've learned things that seem so basic. We can't imagine how we know them. And I might wonder, and I don't know for sure, but I might wonder whether or not the reason why we know those things and we can't imagine how we don't know them is because of the, the way that we're built, that we automatically learn those things and they become a part of us so deeply and so quickly as young infants or whatever that we can't even imagine what the life would be like if we didn't believe yeah, those sorts yeah. of things. So in terms of the specific, what are the faculties or principles of common sense? Right. That's sort of the question. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think it's very striking. I think that he has to be right that there are faculties and principles of common sense. 
And, and to be fair to Reed, he doesn't try to comprehensively list what all of those things right. are. As opposed to somebody like Hume, who's here's the only ways that you can think about relate right, things, right. right? Or Kant has his, is it six principles? I don't know. He, he has some list of principles yeah. that's like his comprehensive list. And Reed's very clear. Could this is an idea. This is a notion of the kind of stuff that's back there for a human being that we might not be able to list all of them, but they're there. Talking about another news story that I read once, there's apparently this diagnosable mental illness where people will see people that they know. This Let me talk about it. There was this woman, and she would see her husband, but she thought that it was an imposter wearing a perfect mask of her husband. Hmm. Okay. So we don't think about that, but apparently we have something in the constitution of our nature, as Reed would say. One of the principles of common sense is it identifies someone's face or body with their person. Yes. And so, and we're actually really good at this. Mm -hmm. Like I can see you from behind and just see like your hair and know, oh, that's Chris. Right. I was watching some soccer games for a while. I was really interested in international soccer and I got used to watching these games and I could recognize from far away, a long ways away, you couldn't recognize the face or anything, but you could watch how the person runs yeah. and you know, oh, that person, I know. Who, oh, it's which, that player. Yes, that yeah, player, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I forget what this condition is called, right? But it's something that this has happened to more than one person where something is broken in their mind where they can no longer match up the right. face of a person that they know with the identity of that person or the soul or the mind. It's, it's a weird thing. Cause you never think about it cause you just do it automatically. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, to be fair to read, am I, did you finish? I didn't. Yeah. Really it's just, you. it just, it seems like those kinds of things there's where I never had to think about, you know, one of the, one of the things Reed points out about Hume's idea of, of, the vividness of me thinking the image I have in my head of the table versus my perception of the table is Reed says, well, actually those are two totally different things right. and you never get confused about which is which. Right. And so don't act like they're the same kind. They're not a different degree of the same kind of thing. They're different kinds of things. Right. 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 And there's so many things that are like that where I never had to learn any of that stuff. I just know how to operate there. Now, does that mean that like where the hardware ends and the software begins could be pushed further back? Maybe. Yeah. It does seem cognitive psychology and other fields like that that are interested in looking at human attention and memory and all of those kinds of things are interested in asking that sort of question. But I don't think it takes away from Reed's point because Reed's trying... Reed has remarkably made a system that's like allowing for there to be that kind right. of question. No, I, that's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to comment that Reed is at the forefront of the exercise of reflecting on the way the mind works. 
And there were others, obviously, but he's really looking inside and saying, how is it that we know things? How does our mind work? All that kind of stuff. There's been a huge number of people who have continued to explore those questions like cognitive psychology and child psychology, somebody like Piaget, who has studied the various stages of human intellectual development. And with these kind and done a lot of observation and experiment and reflection, followed by more people who are doing things now and so on and so forth, that we have a much better vision or understanding of the nature of the mind and how it works. My favorite guy is Michael Polanyi and talking about the tacit component of human minds and so on and so forth. There's a lot of things that we have learned since Reed that, again, it doesn't detract from his goal and his purpose and his way of thinking about things. It's just we've gone a little bit deeper than him. Yeah, I think that there's a materialism that is going to become part of the consequences of this ideal philosophy, either in part as a reaction to it, but in part embracing parts of it that has never gotten over some of Reed's some of Reed's observations, right? Somehow the stuff that's causing me to smell the rose interacts with my nose in some way, mm-hmm. right? And now we've gotten down to nerves and the chemistry of different enzymes that get released when we neurons are firing. Yeah, yeah. All, we have all of that stuff and there's still space, right? There's still a separation between my mind's experience of a smell and the physical things going on that cause that to happen, right? That gap has never been overcome. And so a lot of Reed's insights that have to do with the gap there, there's still, you know, uh, there's a, he's passed away now. I think his name was Daniel Robinson, Um, Mm. he has, if you want to, if you type in Thomas Reed in YouTube, he's one of the first people who pops up lecturing about Reed and he wrote a book about Kant and Mm. Reed and Kant and Reed and Hume. And he's very interesting. He has huge mutton chops. He's, he, I think he lectures at Oxford. So he's very, he wears tweed. Classic stereotype. Yeah. Class, very classic, but he started like his PhD is like in very hard science of like how do your nerves work? He wa- he wanted to do like perception and understanding and he has I don't remember exactly what his degree is in but it's that what is the anatomy of right. the, the nerves and things? Neuroscience. Yeah, he's like a neuroscient like his PhD is in neuroscience, but the end of his career is all lecturing about Hume and Kant and Reed, right? Like we're never going to get over this gap. The there's this materialist way of thinking about stuff where there's suddenly this magic and like my sensation is caused by the stuff over here. That's sort of like leaving my mind out of it. And it's just very striking that to like account for the human experience to account for this idea of common sense, right? What is, what is it that human beings are experiencing? Like Reed is still, you know, he's still relevant to that whole discussion. I agree. I agree. Well, Chris, I think this has been a good introduction to read. I have 
been forgetting to say this on other podcasts, but if folks have questions or comments, they can email us at podcast at gutenberg.edu. Thanks for coming and chatting about Reed. Well, it was my pleasure. I, he is one of my favorite philosophers, so it was a good time chatting with you. And we will be back in just a little bit to talk about more ideas and books which have shaped Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. <laughs>